0: You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Welcome, and before we pray, uh, I want to introduce someone to you all. This morning we have um, Doug and and Wilma Sweeney uh, here visiting. This is the new dean at Beeson. This is my new boss. (laughs) So so, uh, there's there's a lot on the line for me this morning, I'd say. And you're here to witness it, so this is great. Um, We're really glad that they're here. Um, Pray for for them as they're transitioning. Pray for for Beeson. This is a big moment of transition, but we're very glad that you all are here this morning. You're most welcome. The other thing I should say as well is, I've been on sabbatical for five months. I I haven't taught in in seven months. Um, So this could be really dangerous this morning. There's a lot of sort of pent-up energy, so I want to sort of brace you uh, for that a bit. Um, And that's why I feel badly for you all here, but I'll do my best Uh, to avoid that anyway let's let's begin with prayer and we'll dive in our father we come to you this morning with hearts that are filled with thanksgiving we know lord that left to our own devices we we would always go astray but the kindness of your grace and your love draws us back again and again to the wonders of what you've done for us in jesus christ and Lord, I thank you for these dear folks who are here today. I pray that as we spend this time together gathered around your word, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you'd open our hearts and our minds to think and to feel deeply after you. And Lord, our hearts today are grieving again as a nation as we think about what's happened in El Paso and in Dayton. And Lord, there is such evil in our world. We are, we are cognizant of this. And Lord, we um, are also mindful, even as we enter into a book like Kings, that we yearn for you, King Jesus, to come back and to make all these things new. This isn't how it's supposed to be, Lord. And the book of Kings testifies to the kind of dynamics that we experience in our world day in and day out. And, and the kind of hope that we as believers have that this is not the final the final stage of, of the course of history, but we look forward to the to the new heavens and the new earth. So, Father... Gather us together in our hearts and our minds today. And if, um, and we thank you in advance in Jesus' name, amen. Okay. So we're in the book of Kings, and I'm doing four weeks in Kings. Th- this was the idea that I had for our time together. Um, and you, you who've had me before know that this, this is not how it's going to go. Um, but. The- <laughs> but this is the idea that I have today I want to do an introduction a kind of aerial view of what I think the book of Kings is doing canonically and theologically we'll talk a little bit about that Um, next week I want to talk about Solomon more specifically as it moves into uh, Solomon's uh, construction of the temple and think a little bit about temple theology with you next week Um, so come with your sacramental hats on next week because we'll kind of lean into that um, and then the third and the fourth week, I don't know. I'm, uh, we'll, we'll sort of see. I, I thought we'd do sort of Elijah in the third week and the fourth week. We'll, we'll keep that open ended. But that, that's the general idea that to try to give you a, a bit of a good year blimp's view of the book of Kings. I don't think Kings gets a lot of airtime, frankly, um, in the life of the church. I mean, it's easy to kind of get up here and make a jeremiad about that, but I don't think it gets a lot of airtime in the life of the church. And there are reasons for this, I think. Um, I found this quote by an Old Testament scholar whose name is Terence Frytham. He th- th- This is what he says about kings: um, Read First Corinthians, I mean first Kings 15 to 16, or 2 Kings 15 when you're having trouble getting to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so I think there's a kind of idea out there about the Book of Kings being somewhat boring, but I, I and I'll admit, and we're going to talk about some of these challenges this morning, but, um, but I think some of the Bible's greatest narratives are here, um, with Shakespeare kind of smiling on the sidelines as he looks in, because there are elements of those kind of Shakespearean tragedies and dramas that are that are mar- that mark this book. Let me give you an example of this. Um, so Ahab's daughter, you know. Uh, Fun family reunion with Ahab and Jezebel, right? Um, Ahab's daughter, Athaliah, um, who's now married to a king in Judah in the southern kingdom, we'll clarify this in a few minutes, makes every effort to kill her grandson and wipe out the Davidic line in Judah after her husband dies. So here's Athaliah, the, the king's off the throne, Athaliah tries to kill her grandson, Joash, so that she can then wipe out the Davidic line. She doesn't succeed in that. That's, again, a testimony to God's promises to the, to the Davidic line. But she gives it a go. I mean, how about that for a Grandparents' Day text, all right? So there, there are some fascinating elements to the book of Kings, and there's some challenges as well. And I think these are some of the challenges. Let, let me talk about a few of these, and then we'll think about Kings in the, in the book and the canon itself. And when you think about the book of Kings, 1st and 2nd Kings, and by the way, I, I would say, I'm just going to refer to this as kings. The fact that we have 1st and 2nd Kings is just a kind of accident of history. 1st Kings fit onto one scroll, 2nd Kings fit onto another scroll. So this was just a, a recognition of the technology that was at hand at the day. Um and if you move from in our Bibles from First Kings into Second Kings, it's not really a kind of clean move like that ends, a new chapter begins. You catch a story right in the middle of the narrative as you move from the end of First Kings into Second Kings. So it's best to think of Kings really as one as one book, Kings, right? Um but when you think of the book of Kings and compare it to say first and second Samuel, think about the ground that's covered in comparison between these two books, right? In 1 Samuel, you have Samuel come onto the scene, then you have the move to the to the first uh, king of Israel, Saul. A lot of airtime is given to the narrative of Saul and his offspring, and then David comes onto the scene to take up, without doubt, the majority of the narrative of 1 and 2 Samuel. I mean, there is no doubt that Samuel is about King David and God's promises to David and the Davidic line. So when you think about sort of, and I think of these these things spatially from the standpoint of of, of the biblical narrative, when you think of it spatially, um, that, I mean a lot of space within the Bible is given in first and second Samuel to one king in particular, namely uh, uh, King David. You flip the page from the end of Samuel to the beginning of kings, and all of a sudden you realize that the the, the scene is shifting dramatically now. If I can put it in automobile terminology, the narrator puts the clutch in and begins to down to upshift into fourth and the fifth gear. We're kind of going at a slow pace through Israel's history in first and second Samuel. When we get into first and second Kings, things begin to move. You have 11 chapters that are given to Solomon and Solomon's reign. And then after that, you kind of move at a lightning pace through these various kings. Now, I'll talk about that in a second. Um, how does first Kings begin? With really King David as as a lame duck king, um, there's some wild stories at the beginning of First Kings. It's the kind of things that I, I kind of hope you know my boys don't read too soon and ask me questions about it. Yeah. <laughs> have, you, have you read the first few verses of 1 Kings one? You know David's aged now and he can't keep himself warm, and so they go and find a young virgin woman to keep him warm in his bed and. So they can kind of warm up. And uh, By the way, this is, a, a, I'm off script here, but this, this is exhibit A of why biblical narratives are not necessarily prescriptive. Right? A, I don't encourage this for anybody on a, on a cold winter's evening. Um, no, no Abishag the Shunammite for for any of you elderly gentlemen here. I'm sorry, I don't suggest that. Um, but, you know, here's the biblical narrative and, and how, how does it end? Um, but David did not know her. Right? It's, it's giving you a sense about David is now an older man um, it's probably a statement about virility. It's a, a statement about power. And it's a statement about David's weakness to really do what he was called to do and seeing the kingdom move on into the next moment because then you get into this really bad family intrigue between uh, uh, Solomon's older brother and Solomon on who's going to have the throne. So, you, I mean, right out of the gate in Kings, we realize we're, we're dealing, we're, we're breathing a different kind of air when it comes to the, the history of Israel and Israel's history. And moves forward. Uh, here's, here's another, another a part that you sort of have to deal with here. Um, in the book of Kings, we have 40 kings that are discussed along the way. And these 40 kings, their names are confusing. And, and have, you, have you struggled with this, it means it's like, like checkout time, right? Like when you do some of these tests in high school where you get to the quantitative part, and you're like, just forget it. I don't even know what they're talking about. Um, the names are confusing and sometimes overlapping. Let me give you an example of this. There's a Jehoram on the throne in the northern kingdom, and there's a Jehoram on the throne in the southern kingdom. Brace yourself! At the same time. Right. So you're like, which Jehoram are we talking about? At one point in time, I brought this today. I've had this notebook for a while. I was so confused by it, and and I'm, I mean, I'm I'm teaching this stuff. I mean, I pay my mortgage teaching this stuff, right? (laughs) Um, That I finally got a a notebook out and said, "Gentleman, you're going to write this down." And I, ha- I brought it with you this morning. This is my, this, th- these are my notes on the kings of Israel and Judah. I'm like, I had to have this here. So Jeroboam, Nadab, Basah, Elah, Zimri. Then the other side, Rehoboam, Abijah, Asa, Asa Jehoshaphat. Because it's really hard to kind of keep track of who's being talked about as you move through the Book of Kings. That's that's a bit of a challenge, um, especially when you realize that after Solomon. There's a split between the northern and the southern kingdom. Now this is something that I want to slow down a little bit because I'll I'll say, even as a young man growing up in the church and hearing the stories of Israel and Elijah's a prophet to the north and Hosea's a prophet to the north, but Micah's a prophet to the south, very difficult to keep all of this kind of in track and in sync. So can I give you a kind of Cliff's Notes version of what's going on here after the death of Solomon? So here's the Cliff Notes version. You have what's called a united monarchy in Israel for really the succession of three kings, uh, S- uh, Saul, uh, David, and um, Solomon. And what happens, we're going to talk about Solomon, Lord willing, before the morning's over, but what happens with Solomon? I mean, the, the, the train goes completely off the tracks, right? Um, and I, I want to show, uh, this, we'll, we'll end with this as one, but I want to show you what happens to Solomon from the beginning of the ways in which Solomon is described narratively in Kings, with the last bit in 1 Kings 11, how, how, how um, Solomon is described. It's pretty jarring, actually. And once Solomon kind of falls off the tracks and begins to lean against, for lack of a better way of phrasing it, the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. That is the commandment that defines, it's, it's, it's the lens by which all of the other commandments are viewed. Love me and love me exclusively and loyally. It's a a very clear command that shapes everything else in Israel's covenantal relationship with her God. Once the train has gone off the track for Solomon, then a prophet shows up named Ahijah, and Ahijah pulls this Jeroboam, who's he's someone who's sort of related to has a claim to the throne, pulls Jeroboam aside and says, "Um, God has decided to give you a kingdom in the north, and by the way, not just any kingdom. All 11 tribes except for one, Judah. And so after uh, Solomon falls off the scene and he dies and he goes the way of his father, there's now a split between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Israel is now divided. They're divided politically, and in time, they will kind of become divided on some level religiously, at least when it comes to their practice. But what you have is a move toward the northern kingdom being established in Samaria, and the southern kingdom, Judah, one tribe of Israel left in the south, Judah uh, being established again as the center of Israel's worship, um, and the place of the promise for David's continued line of succession. But this is a really big point, and I think it might be helpful. All of the Old Testament is written primarily from the standpoint of the centrality of Judah and the southern kingdom. God's promise to David, all of it. Um, this will tell us something about the way in which God tells us and orders history and history telling versus the way in which maybe, say, a, a secular historian might think about the history of ancient Israel. Why, why do I say this? Because the northern kingdom, once it splits and goes off onto its own, and the southern kingdom with Judah down in the south, the Davidic line, is now separated, the northern kingdom becomes a kind of geopolitical powerhouse. Um, There's a king, and we'll talk about this in a second, but there's a king in the north named Omri, who has a a dynasty that's named after him, the Omride dynasty. Omri's name actually shows up in the, in the annals of Assyria, describing the significance of Amri and how important it was geopolitically for the Assyrians to get Israel under control. You know how much is mentioned about Judah? Zilcho. You want to know why the Assyrians didn't mention anything about Judah in that? Because it's small potatoes, right? Um, the southern kingdom, even though in God's divine economy, is central to messianic hope. From a sort of larger geopolitical standpoint, the Southern Kingdom is—it's is, the backwaters, right? It's um, it's Goodwater, Alabama, right? <laughs> it's uh, <laughs> Pearl City. I hope this is where you're from, but uh, it's, it's it's the backwaters. Um, so this this is significant, and why is it significant? Because after the splitting of the Northern and the, and the Southern Kingdom, names that we become familiar with get a little bit confusing. Why? Because the northern kingdom is more often than not referred to as Israel. All right. And that can get confusing, I think, reading the Bible, right? Israel specifically related to the northern kingdom and the northern kingdom's central cultic and political center there in, in its capital of Samaria. Read the beginning of the book of Micah and you'll see this. Whereas the southern kingdom has its center in, in Jerusalem and, and, and in Judah. And so the southern kingdom is often referred to as Judah. Here are some other names you might hear: um, O Ephraim, my son, Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. Um, Eph- Ephraim is a, is a kind of appellation; it's a term of endearment for the for the northern kingdom, um, Israel. And the southern kingdom is often referred to as Judah. And when you get into the prophets, and by the way, there are scholars who are debating these things. Like as we speak, hopefully they're in church. But I, I mean, as we speak, they're debating these things about what what does it mean to appeal to Israel. In a book like Isaiah, where Isaiah refers to Israel's God, unlike any other prophet, repeatedly as the Holy One of Israel. Well, what does that mean in the 8th century when you have already a political division between the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah? And here's a southern prophet who's referring to Israel's, to, to Judah's God as the Holy One of Israel. Well, what, what's going on there? Well, I think there are some interesting... Um, theological dynamics going on there but getting those things kind of sorted out I I think can can have its challenge so Israel refers to the northern kingdom and Judah tends to refer to the southern kingdom alright let me stop you want to ask any questions was that confusing clear as mud alright a few more things about the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom the southern kingdom was unbroken from David. It lasted 135 years longer than the northern kingdom. But it wasn't as strong as the northern kingdom. And Judah had, you ready for this? Eight good kings. I'm not going to say their names. Um, not bad kid names if you're looking to be different on your street. Uh, Amaziah would be interesting, I think, at a baptism. Um, Jotham, Hezekiah, Josiah. So there are eight good kings in the northern kingdom. I mean, in the southern kingdom. How many good kings in the northern kingdom? Goose egg, right? Jehu is a kind of interesting dynamic, but there's there's none. But there are two major dynasties in the north with Omri and then with, with Jehu. All right? So that's just a little bit of the kind of confusing elements. So let's talk a little bit this morning about the book of Kings in the canon uh, and where it's located in the canon. Someone kindly um, left me a piece of chalk. Was that you, Coffee? Did you put this here? Um, so can I... I've done this for some of you before, but I want to write this up here real, real quickly. When you look at your English Bibles and you open them, you'll, you'll notice that, um, and I, let me see if I remember this from my child. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. right? So that's the English Bible. You get the, the five books of Moses there at the beginning. And then what? Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings. And then after that, 1 Chronicles and 2 Chronicles. So our... Our English Bibles, and this is a fascinating, I think, study of history. The, the, our English Bibles kind of line up with the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, but not really cleanly. Um, how we have the English ordering of our Bibles that have its root in the King James Version, the Authorized Version, and even before that, it's a kind of a mystery of history in some ways. Um, but we know, at least from our, from our reading, that we, we move what? From the law, from the, the Torah, the law, the, the books of Moses, the Pentateuch, into what we call the history books, right? Into what we call what the poetic books, and then we end with what in our English Bible's Old Testament? The prophets, with the last one being Malachi, which makes a great kind of ending as you move into Matthew chapter one. Right? That's that's how that's our four part structure to the English Bible, the Old Testament. But you know that the, the Hebrew canon is ordered differently, right? Um, If you're browsing the Isles of Barnes & Noble and you come across a Hebrew Bible uh, in translation, it would say something like, oh, that's horrible. Um, Tanakh, right? The T stands for, no bonus points here, but anybody? Torah. Torah. The N here, this one's tougher. Who said that? Oh, former Beeson student. (laughs) Net V... (laughs) <laughs> Nevi'im. And then the final one here is the Ketuvim. So the law, the prophets, and the writings. I'm partial to this structure. And right? I'm partial to this because even when you get into the New Testament and you follow the logic and the language of Jesus, Jesus will refer quite often to the law and the prophets as shorthand for the whole of israel's scriptures um the road to emmaus right here jesus is on the road to emmaus and he has i I love this by the way you know it's one of my favorite stories but here jesus is on the road to emmaus and he has a he has a bible study and a communion service all together and the two of them it's just a it's a beautiful setting um but what does jesus uh, how does jesus communicate the significance of his person and work on the basis of, in one part it says, the law and the prophets, and then the next part says, the law, the prophets, and the psalms. I wouldn't necessarily go to the guillotine over this, but I'm pretty convinced that the psalms, which is more often than not the first book of the Ketuvim, is standing there in, in the road Emmaus as a kind of titular head to the whole of the writings. And the way, and this is Genelette's understanding, that's, it might, could very easily be wrong, but the way in which I understand the Old Testament canonically, the law and the prophets form the basic um, theological grammar of the Old Testament. And then when you get into the writings, books like Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Job, Chronicles too is in there. Esther. Um, what, what do we find in the writings? What does life look like on the ground? How, how do we live life in light of the anterior authority of the law and the prophets? That's kind of the dynamic that I think that's going on in the Old Testament. And where do you think in this tripartite structure the book of Kings falls in the Old Testament? It falls right here in the prophets. And the prophets are often referred to in two ways. The former prophets. And then the latter prophets. And who are the former prophets? Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. Um, Who are the latter prophets? Um, Isaiah. makes my heart flutter a little bit, like Isaiah a lot. Jeremiah. Ezekiel. And, if I can refer to this singularly, um, the Book of the Twelve or the Minor Prophets. Those are the latter prophets. And there's so many fascinating things about the interrelationship between the former prophets and the latter prophets that we really don't have great answers to. I mean, for example, why no book of Elijah? Why why no leftover of 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 a collection of the oracles of Elisha or Ahijah? Um, or the unnamed prophet who gets eaten by a lion in 1 Kings 13 that's a that's a text that'll keep you up at night all right um. We don't, we, don't, we don't know a lot of, of, of answers to why that's the case. There's been some suggestions. But what we see here is that you move in time from the former prophets into the latter prophets, often referred to as the writing prophets. And now the prophetic legacy begins to take on a kind of stability within Israel's life that becomes a living tradition that pressures each generation of the faithful to wrestle with the character of Israel's God. Who is God? And is the God who delivered us from Egypt... This is the big question of the book of Kings, too, I believe. Is the God who delivered us from Egypt the same God who delivered us over to the Assyrians and to the Babylonians? And if that's the case, how can it be? That's the big theological question that I think is being pressured on us in the book of Kings... And in the prophets as well. How does the book of Hosea end? Chapter 14, which, by the way, I think is a kind of hermeneutical or interpretive invitation to all of the minor prophets. Discern the will and the ways of our God. Think and engage with your whole being. Who is God? What is God's identity? And what you find weaving its way through um, the former and the latter prophets is that God's identity as revealed in Exodus 34. You remember this? God, here, here Moses is on the mountain and uh, he asked a question that all of us, I think, kind of stand back aghast that he would ask it. I want to see your glory. Who asked that kind of thing, right? I mean, hadn't Moses seen the last uh, scene in um, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark? You, know, says that you, don't, you don't want a, a face-to-face encounter with God. No, but he asks for it and God hides him in a cleft of the rock, and, and the, the narrative is complicated, but the way it seems to kind of unfold there is that God's answer to Moses' question is when God descends on the mountain and reveals his own name to Moses. I'm going to tell you what my name is, Moses. And what's his name? Full of compassion, grace. He visits his chesed, his covenantal faithfulness to the thousandth generation. But then you have those last attributes that say what? But he also recognizes the guilty and he he will visit the guilt of the father on the third and the fourth generation. Now, I don't like to think of it in these terms because there's some problems here theologically, but I'm just going to present it this way. But what you have is a presentation in Exodus 34, 6-7 on the far side of the golden calf encounter where God's identity is kind of out of kilter. He is merciful, or heavier, he's merciful but he's also severe. His mercy does outweigh his severity, and it's his final word, but his severity is not to be trifled with. And this is the dynamic that you're finding yourself having to lean into as you read the book of Kings. God's identity is merciful, he's long-suffering, he's patient, but he is still the holy God, the just one who cannot turn a blind eye towards sin. Um, He is patient, but his patience has a legitimate limit to it. And this is the theological struggle that I think Israel is wrestling with because it lives in our backyard too. And what's the theological struggle? Wrestling with the total witness the Bible or Scripture makes to the being and the identity of God. Because all of us want to cherry pick, don't we? I mean, I really like this part of God's being, but I'll keep that one in the the garage, right? Now, and this was happening in Israel's history as well. Ask Jeremiah the prophet. He's wrestling with these same themes that come out of the book of Deuteronomy and the book of Psalms. There was a present theology that was not a bad theology, namely Zion theology. We, we read Zion theology in a the, the psalm like Psalm 46 the basis of a mighty fortress is our God. Zion will never be shaken, Zion will never be moved. And these false prophets. Um, in the southern kingdom who were confronting Jeremiah are basically saying to Jeremiah, if you read kind of in between the lines, haven't you read Psalm 46? I mean, do, do you believe your Bible, Jeremiah? And what's Jeremiah's response? Do you believe your Bible? right? Have you read Deuteronomy? Because Deuteronomy brings in a kind of covenantal dynamic that says choose you this day, life or death. And how is life to be chosen? By complete loyalty to the Lord himself. The Shema is central to Israel's theological and religious life. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. Our, and here's my kind of reading on that. The Lord our God alone. No, no other God. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind. And uh, again, one, we'll get into kind of Hebrew boring stuff. But I think the last thing we'll say with all your might is probably an adverb. So, I think what's going on there in Deuteronomy 6 4 is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your internal being, with all your intellectual force, and very, very much. Right? That's not great. That's, not, that's why I'm not doing it. I I'm not going to be any Bible translation committee, right? But, but a, a, a lot. Totally. Um, it's central to. Israel's covenantal life before God and Zion theology without a covenantal theology is only a half-baked theology. We all wrestle with this. Coming to terms with the totality of God's being and God's claims on us through the whole of, of Scripture, toda scriptura, all of it as a witness to God's, God's being. Um, and that's why I think it's important to understand the book of Kings and its location in the prophetic literature. This is not a kind of detached empirical history of Israel. I've mentioned this already, but if it were a detached empirical history of Israel, I just want the facts. By the way, there's no such thing as that. But if, but if I just wanted sort of a detached view of Israel's history, then it would be told so differently than the book of Kings. Do you know how many verses are given to Omri in 1 Kings? Not many at all. Here's, a, here's another. I've mentioned this to some of you before in various class settings, but here's another one that still kind of blows my mind. I put first time in Israel. Um, oh, let me check the time. Oh, we gotta land the plane. Um, my first time in Israel was in was in was in January. Um, I I went. I don't know. This is probably not a good thing to admit publicly, but I went. I, I wanted to go with very low expectations. Um, I'm like, there's gonna be a lot of kitsch there, I'm sure. You know, you know, rebaptisms in the Jordan, that stuff makes me get really buggy. And you know, I just I was like, I went with my eyes kind of all right, going carefully. I loved. Every second of it. I could. I mean, I, you know, but you do these these tours, and by the time you get to day seven or eight on some of these tours, I don't know if you're like me, but by the time I get to day seven or eight or nine on one of these kind of Christian tour things, I'm like, I have enjoyed being with these folks, and I, and, but I think we, it's time for us all just to go home now. I think. <laughs> um, and they feel the same way. I mean, I know how that goes. Um, I loved. Every, I would have stayed three more days. I just got a huge kick out of it, and we didn't get. To stop at Megiddo, I regret that. Um, but we drove right by it. I can see it out the bus window as we go. There's Megiddo, and I'm thinking that's where Josiah was killed. Um, Josiah, who's so important to the biblical narrative as a kind of down payment on God's messianic promises in the Davidic line. I mean, Josiah is a is a signal king um, who's given a lot of narrative space in the Book of Kings, and and then we get one Bible verse. That tells us, and Josiah died at the hands of Pharaoh Necho II at Megiddo, and he was buried with his father's next verse. Now, if you bought a history of Israel from somebody and you were wanting a detailed kind of geopolitical understanding, a, 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 a contextualization of what's going on with Josiah, that is a very frustrating verse. Because it raises all kinds of questions like, well, what was going on geopolitically? That, well, we can find that from other sources, but the Bible doesn't say boo about it. And why in the world would Josiah, a king in Judah, find himself all the way up in kind of the northwestern corner of Israel at Megiddo? Why was he up there? Don't know, right? And the Bible seems uninterested in raising those kinds of questions because the book of Kings, and by the way, this isn't to play the book of Kings over historical reality. This is not mythopoetic fiction here. But it's just to say that this is highly selective and thoughtful theological explanation of Israel's history from the standpoint of the theology of the book of Deuteronomy. I want to say this and then, and then I'll about Solomon it, just quickly. Look at how Solomon's life is portrayed at the beginning and then the end. And I'll, and I'll let this be our setup for next week. I, I, this just stood out to me on my front porch yesterday morning 1st <laughs> Kings chapter 3 verse 3 and the, the author here of, of Kings whoever that is um, is doing this intentionally verse 3 Solomon Ahav, he loved the Lord walking in the statutes of David his father he loved the Lord 1 Kings chapter 11, the last chapter we get of King Solomon. Verse 1. Now King Solomon, Ahav, loved many foreign women. <laughs> Along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, Hittite women. And he did, again, what from a political standpoint makes a ton of sense. It's easy to see in here and be kind of critical of it. Makes a ton of sense. Like I'm making these foreign alliances. This, this, if I marry a daughter of one of the neighboring countries, I mean that keeps peace with the father. I mean there's a lot you you can get what's going on here from a political standpoint. And and since I have these foreign women here with me and their and their families and these treaties and alliances that are made, I probably should make some provision for a kind of religious pluralism of some sort. So we're gonna Molech, okay, down there in the valley of Hinnom, you can have some Molech worship down there, and oh, oh Ashira. Take a shira over there, that's fine. And all of a sudden, we are off the tracks, right? Um, The book of Kings is raising the question, how could Babylon and Assyria have happened? And the answer is the Shema. God yearned from his people for one thing, total loyalty to him and to him alone. You remember Luther's definition of both God and an idol, Right? that which we put our faith and confidence in makes both for a god and an idol. They make for both. And the book of Kings testifies to this while filling us with future hope that God's character, it's the character that we find in Exodus, it's the character that we find here in Kings, it's the character that we find all through the Gospels, all the way to the end, is that God does strike down his firstborn son, Israel. But he will raise that son again for the sake of the salvation of all the nations. And when we move into the New Testament and we see Jesus doing all these Israel kind of things, like why is he doing that? Well, because Jesus is, in the words of Irenaeus, recapitulating all of the history of Israel in his own identity, both Israel's election and Israel's rejection when we follow Jesus through the cross. All of that judgment stuff that we read about in the prophets and through the book of Kings is there on the representative Israelite who's the representative of all of all humanity and our substitute, and God strikes him down and he raises them from the dead three days later for the sake of the salvation of the whole world. I mean, That's what we're finding in the book of Kings. Jesus is living into a plot, a redemptive plot, that's already been crafted and staged in a book like Kings, and we'll see some more of it next week. So Father, thank you uh, for this book. It's, uh, it's, it's a wild ride, as your word is. And I pray, Lord, that you will let us see, as we follow these kings and the very complicated patterns of their lives, um, the importance of our having a substitute and representative in our King Jesus, who's lived life for us, who's died and suffered our judgment for us, and who represents us before the Father in the completeness of your humanity now. Let us find hope in that, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.